Welcome to Highlight Church. We're honored to have you this morning. Um, We're in a series, this is week three, entitled Stretch. As a church, we're fasting for 21 days. Um, And my wife, if you were here during worship, you may have heard her say that we're waking up at 5.30 a.m. on a conference call. Uh, Over 30, 35 people uh, joined in. It's been a beautiful thing. Um, let's celebrate that, you know, let's celebrate people for the first time, uh, putting God first and just seeking his face in a very rare way. It's week three today. Um, I'm going to slip fasting in here a few times, but I really want to encourage you today. Uh, I, I really want you to, uh, hear the Lord's heart and the principles that he wants to pass on to you this morning from his word. Um, I believe the principles apply to fasting. So we're not just going to, we're not going to directly teach uh, or define what fasting is. I think week one was an extremely solid week of teaching about fasting, uh, why we fast, the different types of fasting, how you uh, can compare it and contrast it to religious fasting versus uh, relational fasting between you and Christ, not you and something you have to do or rule. Um, But this is something that you do because you just want to seek the heart of God, and you need him this year. You need him in your life, unlike never before. Today is entitled Divide and Conquer. Divide and Conquer. This is going to be good, I hope. (laughs) divide and conquer. Before we get started, go ahead and stand up. Give your neighbor a hug, a high five. Tell them that they look good. Show them some love. Let's take a moment to do that. God. All right, join me in Genesis 13. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 13. Going to talk about our old dear friend, Abram. There you go. Abram. Genesis 13. We're going to read this entire chapter, but I have three points. We're going to expound here. Let's go for it. So it says here, Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev, along with his wife and Lot, um, and all that they owned. Lot is Abram's nephew. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Uh, From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages towards Bethel. They pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they camped before. This is interesting because Abram is just coming from Egypt. Um, He left his father in Haran. Um, And Abraham is from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. God has called Abraham to leave his father. He goes to the place that God has promised him, Canaan, 
Then he leaves Canaan and goes to Egypt. He leaves Canaan because of a famine. And he goes to Egypt where there is food to feast on. He gets into a debacle and uh, he goes back to Canaan. God said, get your butt back to where I promised. And so um, nothing has changed, though, about Canaan. I love God because he can still provide in a famine during a famished season of your life. He's faithful like that. And he'll tell you to get back to that famine because I'm stretching you. All right. So we got here. This was the same place where Abram had built the altar. There he worshiped the Lord again. It's important to worship the Lord when you feel famished in a certain area of your life. Put him in that area where you feel famished. Put him in that area where you don't feel fulfilled. Meet him in your room. Lock your door. Throw on some worship music. Worship him. Allow him to fill you where there is a famine. That has nothing to do with my message. I'm just kind of throwing that stuff in here. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle, and many tents. But the land could not support, I love this, both Abram and Lot, with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. At that time, Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land. God is calling Abram out from his father because he's going to, over the course of the next few millennia, he's about to usher in the savior of the world. Abram is the father of our faith. If you are a Christian, if you uh, practice Judaism, if you are Muslim, all these different sects come from Abram. But there's only one promise. That promise was through Isaac. Jesus is the seed of Isaac. Um, and so we don't have time to really get into that today. But I love it because the church at the time is living amongst Canaanites and Perizzites, but they're in conflict between one another. God has never called us to bud heads, but to unify and push forward as a church. Because when the world looks at us, they don't want to come to church because church people are fake, church people are phony, and they hurt people. So peace out. Okay? It's a lot of stuff in here. I'm trying to get through because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us. Our herdsmen, you know, we're, we're kin, we're relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. You take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate, divide and conquer. If you want the land to the left, I'll go right. If you want to go right, I'll go left. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains. Note that he took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley and the direction everywhere. It looked like the Garden of Eden. This is what the Garden of the Lord, like everything was there. Oh, my God, it's amazing. And it says here, or the beautiful land of Egypt, where they just came from. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What Lot is actually looking at is Sodom and Gomorrah pre-destruction. You know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah? We'll talk about that some other day. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan. And Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. It got to a place where Abraham was praying. 
because pre-incarnate Jesus appeared to Abram. He said, I'm about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to send hellfire and brimstone down on the city. And we have archaeological, historical uh, context to confirm that this actually happened in a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. The pre-incarnate Christ visited Abraham, and he says, I'm about to destroy it. Abraham, being a man of faith, such a righteous man, he said, look, if, if, if I pray and, and you look and you find 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you spare it? The church is supposed to pray for the cities that it's in and it's supposed to serve and it's supposed to share the good news of Jesus to pull people out of the destructive sin in their lives. God went and did his search through his three angels that he sent to Abraham. He came back to Abraham and he reported, I can't find 50. Abram, being a man of consecration and of prayer, went back in. He said, if you find 40, would you spare it? He sent his angels back in. He comes back to Abram and he reports, I can't find 40. Abram, being a man of prayer and consecration, he goes back in. If you 30, would you do it? I can't find 30. 20, would you do it? I can't find 20. 10, would you do it? I can't find 10. 1, would you do it? I can't find 1. Judgment is coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abram had to one day eventually go and get Lot. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but we're going to talk about how the naked eye is known to lie. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. And so verse 14, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can, see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see, I'm sorry, to you and your descendants as a permanent possession land that is still being fought over today. And I will give you so many descendants like the dust of the earth. They cannot be counted. Great, okay? They cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction for I'm giving it to you. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove. Oaks represent great things. Belonging to memory. There he built another altar to the Lord. Let's go to work here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Give me your word, Lord, over the next 45 minutes. Help us to open up our hearts and hear what you have to say. Jesus, have your way in this place. Amen. Amen. So I believe that, um, I think over the past few years, uh, as far as grade school kids are concerned, high schoolers, math has been the favorite subject in America for like I think the past eight years, um, according to Times Magazine. Um, I personally liked math up until about sixth grade (laughs) when it was easy to add and subtract and all that stuff. But uh, I think when I I really started to develop this hate for math was around 10th grade geometry. (laughs) Anyone in here hate geometry? Come on now, I want to see every hand. You were the kids that came to school and said, my homework's through, you know, my homework's done. Can you collect our homework? The ones that didn't raise your hand. So geometry and algebra was good. Didn't like pre-calculus or calculus. Um, period. Well, so you're not a part of that vote. But um, I, I think also that obviously God loves history, right? Like the Bible is a historical book. Uh, I think he also likes language. If you read uh, Genesis chapter 11, before he called Abram, the entire human race had got together and they said, we're going to build this tower up into heaven. 
We want to be like the Most High God. So at that point, he divides the tongues to confuse man because they said, if we would just get together, there is no stopping us. Even when you're focused on being together in a sinful way, there is no stopping you. What if you reverse that and got together for a God purpose? So God said, man, there's no stopping them. I have to mix up their tongues. So I think language, English, math, French, I think it's all God's favorite. It has to be in his top three. But I think math is number one for God. Multiplication, I think, is his top. Um, you start with Jesus Christ, and you get 12 men. We, we talked about women in our team huddle. There are a lot of women who follow the Lord. Yeah. Women actually push Jesus' ministry forward. Um, Luke 8, 1 through 3, that's, that's a good reference for how uh, effective women were in Jesus' ministry. But you have Jesus 1, then you have 12 men. Then you go from 12 men to 120 people in a room. This is after he dies, he resurrects, and he goes to heaven. They're in, they're in the upper room is what we call it. And they're praying for, for the Holy Spirit to come down because Jesus said, I'm going to send you a comforter, a counselor, someone that's going to guide you in all truth, someone that's going to be with you, someone that's going to point you to the word and direct you. So 120, so that's times 10. And then the Holy Spirit comes. Um, weird things happen. Great weird things happen. And then Peter preaches his first sermon filled with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people get saved on the same day. So you go from 1, 12, 120 to 3,000. God loves multiplication. He even says in Isaiah how uh, the increase, to the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Churches that aren't growing, forgive me for saying this, I don't know if they're fulfilling their calling. Maybe they haven't passed the baton to the next generation of leadership, but Churches are called and designed to grow, never to plateau. You're going to have seasons of plateau. The same with your spiritual walk in Jesus. You're not called to plateau. The Bible says from glory to glory. God, God wants to reveal certain things about himself. But I also think rank number two, God's favorite subcategory of math is division. I think, I think he loves division. And we, we can talk about the wows and the ills of religion in the world. I get it. But at the end of the day, there is an absolute truth. And so simply, if I believe in absolute truth and you don't, and you don't there, there's, a, there's a division right there. The truth divides. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Not in a violent context. And he went on to say, you know, in one house there's going to be daughter against mother, son against father, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, simply because one party has chosen to follow me with all their hearts. The other party is kind of, you know, apprehensive about it. Just, I don't know about this Jesus dude. He's new to our city. They're cold. They, They dress different. They're not with the Pharisees. They're not in the synagogues. They're going all over the place. They're serving they're giving their money to this guy. They're, they're weird. They're different. They're next generation. He's 29, 30 years old. Who is this dude? He, he hasn't been to, uh, to, 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 to the school of the rabbis, and he's a carpenter, and they're fishermen, and they're tax collectors, and 
they're prostitutes and they're broken and he's not perfect. He doesn't wear the eight garments of the Pharisees. He's, he, and he's weird. He's different. He's weird. No, I, I can't do the Jesus thing. I so he said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. I came to put friend against friend. If there are friends that you've been rolling with, I actually came to divide that. Because at a certain point, someone has to come this way or someone has to go that way. And so I think division. And so you got tactics like divide and conquer. These are like war tactics. Sometimes even political parties do them where um, you have an opponent. And, and, and if Bobby here is the strong one and Diana's strong, but she's not as strong as Bobby, what you want to do is, is tactically you, you want to divide them. If I'm against them, I want to divide them. And Jesus even did a parable about this. He said, if you break into a strong man's house, you take the strong man out first. You tie him up, then you can get all the plunder. That's how, that's how demons operate. He was, he was talking about how demons operate. When demons come into our lives, they, they take the strong things away so that they can plunder the weaker things. And so I want to divide Bobby from Diana. This is what Jesus actually does in homes. He, he loves divorce. I mean, not Jesus, but the devil. He loves divorce. He loves all this stuff. So um, I want to divide Bobby. And if I can take Bobby one-on-one, if I can knock Bobby out, I got Diana. She's easy. She's easy. And so, yeah, some of the greats do this. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Alexander the Great. I know you don't like him all that much. Probably don't like him at all. I don't. You know, I actually don't even think he made it to heaven. Uh, Adolf Hitler. He was a dude without hope. If he didn't repent, he used that tactic. God also uses the divide and conquer tactic, right? So... But he does it in a reverse way. He doesn't do it in a way in which it's you against your bosses. So God has given you a tactic to overcome your supervisors. He doesn't do it in a way it's you against the people that don't like you. So God is giving you a tactic to divide them and take them out one by one. No, he does it in the reverse way. And we actually just talked about this. He divides you before you can actually set out to fulfill the calling and to conquer in your life. God is seeking to divide you during this season. God employs this tactic because there's a calling on your life. Fasting is a form of division. You're setting yourself apart from the world. You're not eating. You're breaking a routine. You're seeking God. So when you're out to eat with friends that are eating, you're not eating the same thing. You're, why aren't you eating, girl? What's going, man, why aren't you eating? What's going on? Well, I'm fasting because I'm diving in deeper in my relationship and my faith with Jesus. It's a form of division because of what God plans to do in this year and in your life. You're looking at evidence of how powerful this division tactic is. I've had friends in college that used to think I was crazy for fasting. Man, I'm going out tonight. I'm fasting, dude. I, I, I got to get home. I got to read my Bible. I got to get to bed because God has big plans for me. I just, I can feel it. I can sense it. There's something huge on the horizon. It's, it's a tactic of division. Abram is called by God to leave his father's household. Genesis 12, 1 through 2 says this. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, 
leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. So leave. I'm dividing you from everything you know, everyone you know. I'm calling you out. I want to show you great and unimaginable things. I want to multiply you. I want to provide for you. I want to increase your influence. I want to make you a blessing unto others because if the blessing of God is going to flow to you, it's always designed to flow through you. If God is going to do great things, you have to allow that thing to flow through you. The church should not just consume the good news and consume the blessing of God. You ought to always let it flow through you. This is God's vision, plan, and promise for Abraham. Romans 4 tells us that we can claim this promise because Abraham is our father of the faith. Genesis 12, you can proclaim it because Abraham has set the stage for you and I. I think it's Romans 4, 17, if you're looking for that reference. There's a process and a protocol, though, and it's divide and conquer. Abram, if you're going to conquer, if you're going to bless all the families of the world for the next six to seven millennia, if you're going to be great, I have to call you out. It's time to stop. I know you come from a place where idol gods were worship, but I'm calling you to worship and follow the one true God. I want you to conquer, but this is the protocol. I'm cutting it away, and I'm setting you aside. In essence, this is the word holy. Before I became a Christian, I thought holy meant perfect. Holy doesn't mean morally perfect. It means to be set aside for the use of God. And how about this much? God called Abram when he was 75 years old. This tells me that it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are you can still be set aside for God for his great purposes and his great calling. It's never too late. And so now we're going to get into it. We've built our case. We're going to pull some practicality in here. But Abram didn't leave everyone. He brought Lot. I got three points. Point number one, separation precedes elevation. Separation precedes elevation. Genesis 13, 9 says this. It says that, take your choice of any section of the land. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. We will separate. Top of verse 9. Um, we will separate. Next month is going to be about small groups. Just a kind of a commercial here. Next month is going to be about small groups. Um, and then in March, we're going we're gonna, to uh, study some of the, the most profound promises of God. Uh, in March, is going to be a series called um, I Promise. Uh, and then I think between April and May, we're going to study through the book of Ephesians. Going to be doing a lot of teaching. We've been in this kind of practical, preachy flow for a while. But um, I think that is... In the next couple months, we're going to slow down and just teach some real good theology, get our handles on who Jesus really is and who we are in Christ. I just think that's important. So hold out for us for, for some time. It's going to be good. 
Um, so in college, man, you know, Bill Gates is rich. We, we've talked about him, and this, this intrigues me. We're back in the sermon. He made like $73 billion last year, money that we can't even imagine. Um, so for me, I, I don't, I'm not really impressed by the product of something. It, it doesn't matter to me what it is today. I want to know what did it take to get to where you are. $73 billion in one year. You've been the richest man for the past 15 years, hands down. What did it take for you to get there? And so when I was an undergrad, when I was pre-med, I picked up two autobiographies on Gates because I wanted to know his habits, his ways. What, like, what did he do? And so at 13, his mom and his parents exposed him to computers. He developed this love for computer programming and computer analytics. He and his friend Paul Allen, they were obsessed with this stuff. At the age of 18, he enters Harvard, and he tells his professors, I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. And by the time he was 31, he was a billionaire. And so his sophomore year in Harvard, he drops out because he's spending most of his time working on hardware and studying the, 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 the execution of the software on computers. And so he, he, he helped to establish this foundation of technology that we're now able to enjoy. And he did his thing and all that back, back a few years ago. What was interesting is that I would read pages where it told me he would work or be awake for, for 48 hours straight. He wouldn't sleep for two days. And then on the third day, he would sleep for 18 hours. Wake up, do it again. Wake up, do it again. He would be in his garage. He would be in his dorm room. He would just set himself apart. He would lock himself in. Then when Microsoft got off the ground, he would spend days in his office and wouldn't even think about it. And his doctor finally told him, this is unhealthy. You have to change your habits. You have to change your ways. What was he doing? He was setting himself apart because of everything that was going to come in the future. Now today he's the richest man in the world, and he gives billions of dollars to philanthropy. His friend Paul Allen is in the top ten richest. They were setting themselves apart. Separation precedes elevation. And so have you ever heard the quote that says, um, show me your friends, I'll show you your future? If you show me your friends, I'll show you the next three to five years of your life. Um, The Bible somewhere, Paul says that bad company corrupts good character. So I I have three categories where I place people. If you're taking notes, this isn't going to pop on the screen. Three categories where where I place people and how I deal in my relationships with people, even as a pastor. I love all people. I pray for all people but I have to know where you fit in this deal. So I'm going to go number one, three, and then two, because I think two is actually the most profound and the most powerful. Number one, I place people in the empower category. You are an empowerer. You encourage. You speak life. When I get around you, I want to be around you because there's something about you that sharpens me, makes me better, elevates my perspective makes me want to rise to the occasion. There's something about you. So I have, now I have mentors in my life, men, are, men and women that are older that speak into our lives and, 
And this circle can be very small sometimes, but you need people that you can identify and know, I'm walking with you or you're leading me or I'm leading you. But regardless, we're all empowering each other. Then number th- we're going to go number one. Then number three is the uh, toxic people. They're not the most dangerous, unfortunately. They're the easiest to identify, the toxic people. Those that will encourage you to do things that you know aren't good. Uh, those that gossip and bicker and, and, and they're just bad for your soul. They're, they're bad for your life. You love them, but you, you can identify them. They're toxic. Then number two, the second category I like to call the neutralizers. They neutralize. They're the dangerous ones. Because I know where the empowerers are. I go to church. My pastor, I love him. He's the man. That's the empowerer. Okay, didn't get any response. <laughs> I know where the intoxicators are. They, okay, I can keep them over there. But it's the neutralizers. They, these are the people that have been doing the same things for the past five years. They have the same thinking patterns. They don't step out on faith. They work the eight to five. They're, they're stuck where they are. They talk about the same things. They complain about the same things. They want to do the same things on Friday and Saturday. At a certain point, it gets old because you get old. This is the dangerous group simply because you're like, man, I know my life is supposed to be at an eight. Why am I operating at a four? Because you're carrying a lot of lots in your, in your, in your circle. So there's a context here where Abram says, we will separate. We, we, will, we will separate. I, I love this in verse 5 and 6. It says that um, the land could no longer support their wealth. God is going to start a new nation out of Abram, and he sends him off with wealth. Abram inherits wealth from his father, uh, Terah. If I'm getting my facts right, Terah. Lot inherits a certain portion as well from his father. Actually, his father's name is Haran. This is Abram's brother who died. And so Terah, Abram's uh, father, names this city that he chooses to stay in. He names it Haran after his oldest son. Abram is the baby. And so Lot goes with his uncle. And they get to a point where they say, the land, you got to watch me today, okay? We're going to teach clearly in a few months, but stick with me. Today is going to be good. So it says here, the land can no longer support the wealth that we both have. Now, when we think wealth, we think physical things. But I can have a wealth of knowledge. The wealth of the intangible is far more powerful than the wealth of the tangible. So Lot, the land in which we're going cannot support your wealth and my wealth. You know why, Lot? Because you have a wealth of fear. You have a wealth of doubt. You have a wealth of discouragement. You have a wealth of bitterness. You have a wealth of addiction. You have a wealth of bad habits. You have a wealth of gossip. You have a wealth of unhealthy stuff. I got a wealth of faith. I got a wealth of vision. I have a wealth of expectation. I have a wealth of healing. I have a wealth of purpose. I have a wealth of power. 
and the land in which we're going to can't support your wealth and it can't support my wealth. So we got to separate because God is calling me to elevate. Let's praise God. Separation precedes elevation. The name Abram means exalted father. Watch this. He's not a father yet. We just read the verse how God is promising him. So his name is representative of, is a representation of where he's going. And there's a need to divide so that Abram can conquer. God hasn't elevated me yet, but he is going to, okay? And so Lot is actually symbolic of those things or those people that have the power to prevent the promises of God by paralyzing your production. Abram is going to become a father through production, there are things in your life that God is calling you to bring forth. But if you have certain things attached to you, you can't bring certain things forth. He's paralyzing Abram's production. Abram can't get to work. Abram can't sleep because of all this trouble. Abram can't do the things that he's called to fully do because of lot in the land won't support this the promise of God is in your production your production is your obedience it's your obedience your production comes by way of your faith so if you have a wealth of doubt and discouragement and I got a wealth of faith you're going to level me out God God can't get me to obey or trust him in anything I can't even take the first step because I'm connected to you And in order to produce, you have to place yourself in certain environments that are conducive to your production. Is that good? So, um, and look, I'm not being mean, pastors. Like, this is, like, we got small groups coming up, so it's going to be so important. Please sign up for a small group. Going to have two women's group, one co-ed, and one men's group. Sign up for that group. Put yourself in an environment where you can be encouraged, challenged, and you can dive deeper into your faith. God wants to bring something forth from your life this year. Um, and so I'm not saying don't go have lunch, don't hang out, don't go have dinner. But what I am saying is that you have to love certain people from a distance in order to follow God into your destiny. Praise God for that. Amen. Point number two. I think this may be my favorite one. Naked eye is known to lie. Genesis 13, 10 says this. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan. He took a long look at the fertile plains. We're not going to read the rest of that. We kind of explained the Sodom and Gomorrah deal. Um, he took a long look. The naked eye is known to lie. You know, so God has given us our senses, and um, it, sense of sight is very vital. It helps us to spot danger. 
um, potential relationships um, and, and good things, the sense of sight is extremely vital for our lives. So um, not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with sense, but we do have to watch out for certain indicators. I love this, this word. There's this, this portion of our brain that sits in our temporal lobe. It's the amygdala. Did I pronounce that right? Amygdala. There you go. When you see something that you like or that reminds you of something pleasurable, you know, it could be a car. It could be whatever. It could be a design. It could be you, your spouse. It could be whatever. Um, the amygdala releases large portions of endorphins within your brain and throughout you know, it goes through your spine, the peripheral nervous system, into the rest of your body. So when you see something and it, it, it makes you feel good, oh, that, that's amazing, or man, that car is nice, or man, those shoes are awesome, or that's just a nice setup in that church. That is very nice. It produces a certain amount of pleasure on the inside physiologically, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the way we typically translate things that we see is that if it brought me pleasure, it must be right. It must be right. If it, if it looked good, it must be right. If it looks bad, it must be wrong. You got to follow me here today, okay? Because Lot is looking at the fertile plains. And the Bible says that this place that he's looking at looks like the Garden of Eden, where there was no lack. And it was also toward Egypt where they had just came from. So, Lot, you're moving in that direction. I'm moving in this direction. So Abraham has the faith and the trust enough to say, hey, you make the choice. Because in Genesis 12, God has already promised me all of his goodness. You choose. Whatever you want to do, you choose. Wherever God sends me, he's going to bless. I'm good. So it says he takes a long Look at the plains. There's nothing wrong with our senses. The problem is, is when we allow our senses to drive our lives in a world that doesn't always make sense. It's when you allow the touch and the taste and the sound and the sight to drive your life in a world that always, that won't always align with your desires. And so Lot is allowing the naked eye to drive him to a place that God is actually going to destroy one day. We have to watch the naked eye. The naked eye doesn't just lie. It will magnify. Remember when um, I first uh, started dating uh, my wife, it wasn't, we were friends first for about nine months. And um, she, uh, she had a two-year-old son. And I'd always told myself, can't, can't marry nobody with no kids. I don't know about that. So I'm like, all right, we'll be friends, but I'm out soon. So, um. I, you know, do we got the picture? So, um, yeah, go for it. I, uh, 
Yeah. So I, um, I would start to contemplate, like, man, I can't do this, dude. Like, he may grow up to kill me in my sleep. <laughs> he may hate my guts. Um, if I ever try to discipline him, she's going to rebuke me and correct me. This is going to never work. I've seen it happen time and time again. Um, but the first year, we were friends. The Lord put me in a youth director position at a pretty awesome church, and she was uh, my Robin. She would do my PowerPoints, lead our worship team. Um, you may have to bring me down. Me and Chris kind of went over this. I guess this is my sweet spot. Um, and we prayed and we read, and she, the, when, after she got saved, she, she fasted, didn't ask me a question about it. I'm going to do all water first three days, and she did it. So we were reading and praying and stuff, and there were eventually times she was in nursing school, and I would have to come over because her mom was working or her grandma wasn't home, and I would put Jaziel to sleep. You know, I, I still kind of allowed the naked eye to kind of dictate this thing, even as we were growing. Uh, I don't know if this is possible. Then I started to magnify it. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I'm like, this ain't going to work. Woody looks happy, but I'm not going to be as happy as Woody. I said, no, Lord, this ain't going to work. I'm glad she gave her life to Christ, and I'm glad she got saved. But the eye is trying to magnify the fact that this is just not it. I then considered some things. I said, you know, we're reading. I believe this is the one. I believe by faith this is the one you've called me to. I think we're going to have a great future, a great destiny. I think you're going to use us in great ways. I can't really see it because what I see now is a desert. What I see now is Canaan. What I see now just doesn't line up with what I believe you're speaking into my heart. I began to ponder on verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, we live by believing, not by seeing. The naked eye will lie and magnify. It tends to magnify things that are big. It makes it a lot bigger than what it truly is. The grass ain't always greener on the other side. We're going to do a series next year called Hollow Mansions. People don't be happy. And then it tends to demagnify, making things smaller than what they truly are. As a pastor, one of the greatest privileges I have is to look at you and see your potential. So I love to magnify the great things about you because that's where God is. The enemy is going to demagnify, going to devalue who you are. So Lot is seeing the fertile plains, and his eyes are magnifying. What is he doing? He's living by sight and not by faith. What I come to understand about the naked eye in this season is had I allowed it to speak to me about Jay and Kyra, I wouldn't be able to experience this. You got to praise God.
the naked eye, the naked eye will lie. I know it's tough at work, but that's not all to your story. Maybe God has given you strength for the great calling he has in the future. I know those kids are running you crazy and you and your mom can't get along, you and your dad, whatever your deal is, but he's equipping you. He wants to heal that and he wants to use that in your future. Had I allowed this, I couldn't have experienced this today. That looks like Sodom and Gomorrah back there, but more so that. Come on, let's praise God. We got point number three coming up. It leads us to our third point. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot my, my, my punchline. Dang. All right. God has promised to bless the faith you live by, not the lies you're led by. God has promised to bless the faith you live by, not the lies you're led by. Point number three. Perception determines reception. Perception determines reception. Verse 15 says this. All the land that you see, I will give to you. Come on now, technology. I will give to you, Genesis 13, 15 through 17, in your offspring forever. It's okay. Just follow me. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Just keep that in your mind. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. This is important to identify. Because whenever God would talk to Abram about what he was promising him in the future, he would, he would use, the first time he used the sky, he said, your descendants will be as the stars of the sky. You got to watch God. Thank you, guys. You guys are amazing. You got to watch the Lord. He, he's very, he likes to sometimes come down to our level to speak to us in ways that we can understand. So Abram, knowing I'm 75 years old, my wife is barren. I don't have any kids. I don't know what descendants you're talking about. I don't know what promise you're talking about. I don't see how you can do the impossible in this situation. God has to give him a photograph of what he's going to do. So scientifically, they say if you stand out on the top of a high place and it's pitch black at night, they say that with the naked eye, you can probably, if you took your time, stand there and count 2,000 stars. From a hemisphere standpoint, they're, they're like a other, they're, they're another 8,000 or so stars that you can't see, simply because your, your range, your, your view allows you to only see a certain cir- circumference of the space. But on this other side of the world, there's like 8,000 more stars. So number one, what you can see blows your mind. Number two, there's more than what meets the eye that actually exists. So he's telling Abram, this is what I'm going to do in the future. And he's actually done it right now. This Christianity is 2.3 billion people, 6,000 years post-Abram. He's done it because he's faithful. God fulfills his promises. That's good. I like this one, though. 
Because it's God is speaking to Abram based upon what he's looking at. This is in the middle of the day. Lot sees the fertile plains of Zoar. Sodom and Gomorrah is the nickname, Zoar. It was called Zoar after it actually got destroyed. It's a whole different story. Abram is looking at Canaan, which is at this point, it's a desert. So Lot leaves, separates. God speaks. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Lot leaves, God speaks. The reason you can't hear God is maybe because the environment you're in and the people you're around. Lot leaves, God speaks, and he's very descriptive. He said, all right, now I can deal with you because you're by yourself. I have your heart, I have your mind, I have your ear, I want to do the impossible. Watch me. Now, your descendants, they won't be like the stars of the sky. They will, but I want to speak to you in a way you can understand. They're going to be like the dust of the earth. Because he has to speak faith into him. I'm alone and this doesn't make no sense. This doesn't look like anything. God, you said follow you. This is hard. This is tough. This is boring. This is whatever. You said follow you. Where is your promise? Where is your goodness? And it's like, okay, there's just dust. There's, there's a desert. There's tumbleweed. There are coyotes. This is crazy. The Canaanites are crazy. The Perizzites are crazy. They look fly. That looks fertile. This looks bonkers. Whatever. So God says dust. Okay, good. Now, the word dust in the Hebrew is defined as rubbish and debris so God gives that great stuff to lot he gives us rubbish and and debris and and I got to thinking about you know like if you're in school you got all these books Uh, you're currently at this job you're at or there's a there's a relational aspect of your life and, and how a lot of times we're tempted to treat these things like rubbish and debris. We're tempted to treat, we're, or we're single. We, we, we treat it as rubbish. Like, like, God, is there really someone out there for me? And God's like, I know all you see is rubbish and debris. Or your finances, they look like rubbish. Your credit score, it looks like rubbish and and debris. Looks like rubbish and debris. This is the thing about how perception determines reception. Um, it's, It's how you see something. How you see it determines how you treat it. Maybe this desert is a setting or a context in which God is calling Abram to cultivate a greater life, to to dig and to build and to grind and to get in the books and to separate yourself and to study and, and, and to separate yourself and to love your family and to separate yourself and to serve in your church and to separate yourself and to believe God in this season and to separate yourself in your singleness and trust that he's lining someone up for you. I mean, if God can send your pastor's wife, uh, you know, a me, he can certainly do anything for you. He can turn your situation around. He can bring your husband back home. He can speak some sense into your wife. But it's how you see and treat your desert that determines what you receive from the desert. Now watch this. This this kind of dust is what you call ambient dust. 
This is environmental dust. There's a different dust in this room than that what is out there. Ambient dust, they say, um, in order to actually um, uh, measure it, you would have to put these powerful devices outside, huge. And you would have to run them for months on, like, high power. And it would, and it would take months just to gather enough dust out in the environment to weigh in order to determine just how much dust is out there. Scientists today have said that you cannot watch God you cannot measure environmental dust. I think y'all just missed me. It just went. You caught me? You can't measure environmental dust. You can't count the stars. You can't count the dust. What is God telling Abram? What I'm about to do in your life. It's going to be something you can't quantify, qualify, express. You just have to have the faith and be willing to experience it. You have to have the faith. So don't see it as dust. Watch me. Take a note. Maybe what you see as dust, maybe it's an indication of the magnitude of your destiny. Maybe what you see as dust is an indication of the magnitude of your destiny. It's, it's how you perceive your relationship with God. It's what you trust him for over the next year, two, three years. It's going to take time because Abram's 75. He actually doesn't have Isaac until he's 100. It took 25 years for the promise to come to pass. But nevertheless, you have to be steadfast. What if we started to see opposition as opportunity? What if we started to see barriers as breakthroughs? What if we started to look at our lack in light of God's love? What about the gross parts about ourselves or about life? What if we started to see the grow, the grotesque? the grossness of our lives in light of God's grace and how he actually wants to meet you there and he knows exactly where you are and how you're tempted to say, man, they're making it. They're doing great. They got Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm stuck with dust. It's how you perceive the dust that determines how you experience the destiny that God has for you. It's how you see that determines what you receive. It's time for you to start to perceive your problems through the filter of his promises. And in Jesus, you've been given all things. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to pray. Let's praise God. If that word blessed your life, let's praise him with a hand clap. We're going to bow our heads this morning going to pray a prayer of blessing over us. Just open up your heart. You don't have to repeat after me. We're just going to pray. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you, God. Thank you for allowing us to come into a space to worship you where we're free of persecution, but we can freely come in here and lift our hands and experience you and hear your word. God, I pray that you would fill us with your power, 
your grace, your love. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, God, that you're separating us because you're elevating us. Right now, you're working in our hearts. You've spoken today. And there are promises in our lives that you want to fulfill. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.